There was a missionary home on furlough who was looking for a young fellow to go out to to teach in the Presbyterian Boys' School in Bancroft. The plan was that he was to be there for seven years, learn the language, get on to the running of the school and teach, and come home and furlough for one year, then go back and take charge of the school, and the present headmaster of the school would, uh, would retire. So that fall, after graduation, I married a classmate of mine, and we started for Siam. Now, that was the day before airplanes, so we had to go by boat. It took us six weeks to get out there. We went out by way of Hawaiian Islands, Japan, and China, and around past what is now Vietnam, up in the Gulf of Siam, and 20 miles up the river to Bangkok. Well, time forbids me to tell you of our interesting sojourn in that Oriental city where Eastern and Western civilization exists side by side. By the way, that country, uh, we speak of that country now as uh, Thailand. Now, the Siamese never did call it Siam. They always called it Moon Thai. Moon is the word for land, and Thai is the word for free. They put the adjectives after the nouns. And in those days, uh, very few tourists ever got to Bangkok. But now that we have airplane traffic there, it's become quite a quite a tourist result. So as a result of that, we now all speak of Siam as Thailand. Well, instead of staying there seven years, we only stayed there three years. My wife's health forced us to return to the States. And so this was in the spring of 1912 when we left Bangkok for home. My oldest boy was born in Bangkok and was 10 months old when we started for home. As we had gone out by way of the Pacific, we decided to come back by way of the Atlantic, thereby circumnavigating the globe. So we took a little cozy steamer down to Singapore and there took a fast German liner for Europe, going through the Indian Ocean, the Red Sea, through the Suez Canal. And we got off of the boat at, at Naples, Italy, instead of going around to England as the boat did. There were two interesting things happened in Naples, as our boat pulled in the harbor in Naples, I saw a, a boat with the American flag at the foremast, which was a signal that she was leaving for America that day. 
I asked the sailor, I said, what boat is that? He says, that's the canard boat, the, the Carpathia, which is leaving for New York today. She did and was on her return trip when she picked up the survivors of the Titanic. Also, while in Naples, I first heard of the Titanic. It was advertised as a new triple-screw triple steamer of the White Star Line. It was making a maiden voyage from England on April the 10th. Well, as that was about the date that we would be leaving England, I said to my wife, well, that's the boat we're going to take across the Atlantic. So we spent the next uh, couple of weeks in Europe, going from Naples up to Venice and then to Rome and to Florence, into Switzerland, then over to Paris, then across to London. Upon reaching London, I went to the White Star office to get a reservation on the Titanic and was told that all reservations had been taken. In fact, many people had come over from Canada and also America just to go back on the, this new, beautiful White Star Liner on her maiden voyage. Well, I was quite a disappointed boy. I kind of got on the good side of one of the clerks there, and I said, isn't there any possibility of getting a reservation on the Titanic? He said, the only chance is that you might have a cancellation. Just come back tomorrow. Maybe we'll have one. So I went back the next day, and he said, yes, we had a reservation. So we spent the next week seeing the sights in London. On the morning of April the 10th, 1912, we took a steamer train for Southampton, the port of London. The Titanic was the finest liner that ever been, ever been built, except the Olympic, which it was its sister vessel, had been built a few years before. She was equipped with all the conveniences that one would desire. Elevators carried the passengers up and down the ten decks. Beautiful parlors, dining rooms. Squash racket court, Turkish bath, swimming pool. But best of all, the Titanic was non-sinkable. Watertight compartments, which could be closed, would render the boat absolutely secure and non-sinkable. So we were told. Here's a boat that builders say that God Almighty cannot sink. So confident were they who equipped this vessel that provision in the way of lifeboats was made for only one-third of the crew and passenger capacity. The last picture that was taken of the Titanic 
was as she left Queenstown, Ireland. I have such a picture. The first few days out were uneventful. The sea was calm. The weather was nice. Everybody was having a good time. The tables were piled with all the luxuries and delicacies that one would desire. I enjoyed going down in the inside of the boat exploring this this great vessel. She was over three city blocks long, 64 feet wide and 64 feet high. On Sunday, there was a very perceptible drop in temperature. The captain had been warned that we were approaching the region of icebergs, but wanting to make a record trip, he set the boat full speed ahead. This was Sunday, April the 14th. That night a service was held in the one of the dining rooms of the Titanic. Songs were sung, scripture was read, prayer was offered, and the speaker of the evening, an English clergyman, took as his subject the perils of the sea, comparing the perils of life to the perils of the sea. How little did that happy throng who with reverent heart were worshiping God at that time realized within a, that within a few hours the great majority of them would meet him. We retired about 10 o'clock and I was sleeping peacefully while I was awakened not by the collision with the iceberg but by the stillness of the boat. You folks know when you've ridden on a Pullman sleeper that the click of the rails kind of puts you to sleep. And when the train stops at the station, the quietness wakens you. I thought, what in the world is uh, the engine stopped this time of night for? So I put a raincoat on over my pajamas and went out on the deck and I saw a sailor looking over into the water, and I said, uh, what's wrong? Oh, he said, we, we bumped into an iceberg. Didn't do any harm, I guess. I remarked that it certainly felt cold enough for an iceberg. I went back to the cabin, told my wife what had happened. She was in the lower berth with our, our baby boy. And I crawled up into the upper berth and went back to sleep. I was awakened again by the sailors pounding on the door to say, everybody on deck, everybody on deck with your life belt. Well, I got up again. I thought it was so foolish to get us up at that time of the night. Why didn't you at least wait till morning? Both can't sink anyhow. 
But I thought they were following the rules of the sea. And so uh, I put on an old suit that was hanging there in the hall, in the room, left a perfectly good suit hanging there in the cabin. It's still there. Also, uh, I had some gold pieces in my trunk. Just before I they left Bangkok, there was a man came to Bangkok from America with $100 worth of gold pieces. That's back in the days when you could carry gold. And it was hard to get rid of it out there, so I gave him Siamese money for it, put it in a little sack and put it at the bottom of my trunk. It's still there. I'd like to have it because it'd be worth a lot more than $100 today. So we wrapped a steamer rug around the baby boy and went up on deck. Well, there, the great throng gathered, looked like a crowd on a busy street. I saw no panic the entire time we were on the boat. Of course, no doubt at the last minutes when the boat was sinking, the people still on board, and must have been, the panic must have been terrible. They pointed to a light in the distance, said, there's a boat over there that comes to the, to the worst, you'll come and rescue us. Well, that boat never came. At a hearing later on, the captain of that boat, I forget the name of it now, it was a German boat, claimed that he was on the other side of the ice field and could not reach us. We were there for a sound when they gave the cry to the lifeboats, women and children first. Well, they had a hard time getting to women and children in the lifeboats. They didn't want to run this chance. I didn't want to trust the lives of my wife and baby to one of those lifeboats and into the ocean. As a result, the first boats are only half filled with women and children who were practically forced into the boats. I had no intention of putting my wife in a lifeboat. In fact, we went down to one of the lower decks. And while I was down there, I got to talking to a a bunch of stokers. You know, those are the fellows that shovel the coal. That's back in the days when they used coal instead of oil. And they said, this boat's going to sink. So the water rushing in the holes below. Well, just as there were two or three other men there, my wife is the only woman. And just at that moment, boat number 13 came by our deck. And one of the stokers ran over to the deck and saw that the boat was only partially filled. He got the, the call to the men above who were lowering the boat to hold it there. And these stokers, about a dozen of them, a few other men and passengers, my wife and myself, got in boat number 13. And we were 
When we got down to the water, we couldn't get loose from the block and tackle. There was a lever in the center of the boat that was supposed to pull to loosen the block and tackle, but it was all gummed up with paint. We drifted back a little bit. In the meantime, boat number 16, or number 15, rather, came down on top of us, came so close that we could touch it with the, the bottom of the boat with our hands. Heedless of our shrieks of terror, but pretty soon they, the men above realized what was happening, and they held the boat over our heads while these stokers got out their jackknives and cut the big two-inch rope, so we pulled away to safety. We pulled away the distance of perhaps a uh, half a mile and watched the proud Titanic sink. At the first glance, you see Mount Harn. But as I looked toward the front of the vessel, I could see that the lower line of portholes ran down into the water. In fact, the lights burned to just a few minutes before she sank. The last I saw of the Titanic was the the stern of the boat outlined against the starry sky. And then with a gentle swish, she disappeared from sight. The Titanic struck the iceberg just before midnight. Why she sank so rapidly and why the, the book has didn't hold is, is a mystery. There are several theories, but I think the little selective one is that the, as the boat struck the iceberg, she swerved to the left and ripped out the whole front side of the boat. For a moment, all the sound, and then across that vast, vast waste of waters, after the sound will ever ring in my ears, the cries of those perishing in the icy water. They didn't drown because they had on life preservers. And had the water been warm, they could have been picked up later. There were a few that were, were picked up and saved. I talked to one man who had been in the water. I also saw them the next day. I got on the Carpathia. I saw them bury some of the men who died after being picked out of the water. Well, there we were, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, in a tiny lifeboat, no provision or lifeboat, no water, no captain. One of the we elected one of the stokers to be our captain, and he gave the direction to us the men as we rode about, trying to keep with the other boats. We didn't know when help would come, but I was amazed to see how calm the water was. Because the Atlantic is always rough, but I realized found out the next morning the reason was that we were surrounded by ice and that kept the water calm. Uh, along about uh, three o'clock in the morning, I saw a light on the horizon that looked a little different from a star that twinkles or a planet that gives a steady light, a sort of a wavering light. And it kept getting a little brighter and a little brighter. And just at the break of dawn, we saw the mass of the rescue ship. 
the Carpathia. She was 50 miles away when she got the SOS call. And the captain put her on full steam and got to us just at daylight. So we rolled over to the Carpathia. The men climbed up rope ladders. The women were pulled up in swings. And they lowered a sack, and I put our baby in a sack, and he was hoisted to safety. We didn't know how many had been lost. Our, the captain of the Carpathia got in touch with all vessels in the vicinity, and there were no survivors there. And when he counted us, there were just a little over 1,500. And we knew that there, had been, there were 2,200 on the Titanic when she struck the iceberg. One of the sad things about the Titanic disaster is that although they weren't lifeboats enough for all, there was lifeboats enough for 1,200 people. And only 700 were saved. 1,500, I met 1,500 lost. The Carpathia was on its way to Europe, but she, the captain decided to take us back to New York. They had plenty of food on board for us, but we were, uh, had, a, had a hard time finding a place to sleep. My wife and baby slept on the floor in the dining room I could camp in a chair, got what sleep I could. It was a slow, hazardous trip. It was storming all the way to New York. But we were glad that we were safe. As we left the scene of the disaster, of the disaster that morning, I looked back and saw those icebergs gleaming there in the morning sun. They looked so beautiful and harmless. But I knew that the proud Titanic lay at the bottom of the ocean, carrying millions of dollars worth of property and 1,500 precious lives.